0: rock em nation podcast this is another episode of dive cuts uh season four episode four i am your host samuel t snelling here with a glass of woodford reserve double oaked uh sipping it's a store pick very very recommended if you see it um this specific store uh as i'm not going to introduce my co-host just yet is a Lebanon, Illinois uh, Wine and Spirits. So it's, it's a little little metro east, a little further out, um, but well worth the pickup. Um, with me as always, friend of the program, my co-host, Matthew J. Harris. Matt, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, sir. Uh, I'm glad that you have double oaked. Um, I've never been a... I should say we were just talking about this before we came on air about people who don't like certain bourbon, but uh, I've never been like a big Woodford devotee, so I'm glad that you are enjoying.
0: It. Well, I will say like I, like Woodford's one of those things like if if that's what's available, I'll drink it. Like it's it's always good. It's not great, but it's it's always good. Um, if you th- consider the price point, um, I was a little uh, yeah, I was not really peaked at all by the by the double oaked, but um, had some people that I kind of trust their opinion on and uh, said it was awesome, and so I went and, and, you know, picked up a bottle, I think it was like, it's like 50 bucks, so it's a, you know, pretty good price, and uh, popped it open with, my dad came over the other night, we were grilling some pork, and it's a really, really nice bottle, so if you, I would say if you see a store pick, I would definitely think it's 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 worth its value. Um I you know I, I have not tried their regular version. It, it, if it's cheaper, I probably would, would would consider picking it up again. But uh, um, the store pick for sure uh, is is excellent. It's it's nice. It's desserty. It just hits all those good bourbon notes. Um, got a nice little you know vanilla palette to it. It's a very easy drinker. So that's what I'm on tonight. You on anything?
1: Oh uh, no, I'm 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 on water. Uh, but we also. Uh, ordered a nice, uh, wood fired pizza from a really, really good pizza place here. So uh, that was my treat. was uh, some
0: pizza nice. So a few things have happened since the last time we recorded. Um, namely, uh, two so we recorded two weeks ago, which was just before Trevor and Brazil like blew up. Um, And went from a Mizzou offer to a Mizzou commit in in lightning speed Uh, a couple days later. um, Top Mizzou target uh, from DeSmet in St. Louis, Yaya Kaida, uh, also committed. Um, So two commits, that that puts Missouri at five total. Uh, A lot of local kids, which uh, some fans will uh, be really into, others won't care um i'm kind of of the don't really care variety i i think you, you probably get a little more buy-in if they're local you know guys that are gonna want to stick it out uh rather than than bolt but uh but this is a, a a group of five that i think you and i both really really like overall
1: yeah I, I i think it's it's sort of ironic that three weeks ago i think we were all sort of sitting here saying you know good things need to happen and you no, know, they needed some luck to break their way, and it appears that, to the degree, that happened. Um, you know, I, I think people can fixate on, you know, what happened with some guys who were targeted earlier in the cycle, um, or a guy like uh, Tamar Bates going uh, to Texas. But I think, by and large, if you were to look at Missouri and say, you know. They you know, wanted to land Anton Brookshire. They wanted to land Tamar Bates, and they wanted to land Yaya Akeda. They got two out of the three. Um, we talked about how they've done a pretty good job, I think, getting in and identifying undervalued talent before um, its stock really takes off. And I think Trevon Brazil uh, could be a guy that, um, depending on what his prep season looks like at, when he plays for Kickapoo, could be one of those guys, but I think you watch him on tape, and it's obvious the, you know, the physical profile is there, and the athleticism is there. Um, you know, there's a reason why he he's considered a diamond in the rough for a reason. But there were you know really really respected programs, Kansas, Virginia, Oregon, you know, reaching out and trying to touch base. Up at Missouri was first in the door and managed to secure his services. So even though maybe the the rankings and sort of the general. Broader scouting consensus hasn't quite coalesced yet. That still looks like a quality pickup, and I think you look at a, a kid like Sean Gordon who we talked about on our last episode. You know, ticks a lot of boxes that I think you know a Conzo Martin type wing has. So again, this is not a class that, that that's built for immediate returns, but there's a nice kind of mix of players and and, and skill sets and, and body types in this group. That, that you should feel like if two or three can really come out and be steady contributors, it's, you know, over a three- or four-year period, then this was this a win. Um, and I think that they, you know, picked up three guys that they really, really wanted, and they did a nice job sort of pivoting uh, when they needed to to fill in the rest of the class. Now we'll see what they do uh, when spring comes because I think that, that should be when we uh, see the next real uh, action pickup for them
0: yeah so it's it's interesting you know we've talked a lot about brookshire and and sort of how we feel about him um you know i'm i'm a big fan i think we we did talk about Dewar gordon and sort of his his ceiling um you know and i don't i don't really want to uh yeah i have a hard time kind of you know bashing kids uh or, or anything like that um but i think like there's certainly a a tempered expectation around Caleb Brown um, you know but you can kind of see where the move makes a lot of sense if it's a move where you're you're kind of you know buying low on a kid who you're familiar with because of the family you know it's a good family you know it, you know uh, a lot about his brother uh, and the work ethic that his brother displays uh, you know how he is in the classroom how he is on campus and you think that's going to translate? And at worst, you have, uh, you know, a kid who's going to be a good program kid and, and you know give you some minutes here and there. I think it's a good smart play. But I think very clearly that the priority in the class at Combo Guard was, you know, was was not Caleb Brown. It was it was Tamar Bates. Um, and so when you take the class as a whole, and you look at like you said, like I think when we started uh, the off-season, it was um, it was Tamar Bates and it was Yaya Keita were, were on the, the list of, of wants. Um, we didn't really know how, uh, how, I guess, deeply embedded they were with Brookshire. Um, but yeah, so you can kind of look at two of the three. But I also think it's like, contextually, I, I, the, there's always gonna be guys that sort of spring up late. And I, I feel like in a lot of cases, Mizzou's plan B hasn't worked out. But their plan B this time ended up being a guy who I am probably the most excited about in the class. And that's Brazil. Um, and I, I don't know how you're pronouncing. I'm saying Brazil. I don't think we've been told one way or the other yet. Um, my 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 instincts see his last name spelled the same as, uh, as uh, the at woman uh yeah uh donna brazil and everyone says brazil for donna brazil so it's spelled the same i'm gonna say brazil um if it's different we'll adjust lord lord knows that you and i have you know mispronounced names in the past and ended up having to be corrected so um but he's a guy who i think i am as if not more excited about his potential uh because of all the physical traits that you look for in that kind of 3 and D wing. He's got great size at 6'8". And, you know, according to people that you've talked to, like, it's a it's legit 6'8". It's a kid that sprung up uh, significantly over the last year. Yeah, incredibly long arms. And so now you're pairing him with another, uh, you know, really great wing with with great... Size and and, you know great reach, Uh, and you've got two guys on the wing who can really get you excited. With that said, I think um, you know it's clear to say that they missed on the guy that they wanted, which was Tamar Bates. I think it's also uh, fair to say that they missed on the guy that they wanted, probably um, in Dura Gordon's place, which probably was uh, David Joplin, who seemed to be kind of the their prime target. I think. They seemed to offer Joplin and Graham uh, about the same time, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, So it seemed like those guys were probably on equal footing for Mizzou and their scout. Uh, And once it became kind of clear that, that, you know, Graham was going to get way more of the kind of offers that Mizzou wasn't going to be able to compete with. uh, And Graham ended up committing to Maryland, um, which is... uh, I was a little surprised that, you know, considering I, th- I think he had a uh, legitimate interest from Michigan State and, uh, you know, maybe Michigan State wasn't as interested in uh, him as, as, you know, the, the timing of the offer would insist, but, you know, he had offers from North Carolina too, so, um, but I think it became clear that they, they were probably going to pursue Bates and then Joplin uh, as, as kind of like their combo guard and, and, uh, and combo forward. And that turned into Dura Gordon, which again, like, I think some of our criticism for the recruiting in the past has been not being able to land plan B when, when plan A missed. Um, And in this case, like they're, they've got two plan A's and uh, I would say two plan B's. uh, And then I I think probably uh, you, you would, be able to add a wild card in in Brazil who when you see a a kid kind of blow up the way that Brazil did and he's in your backyard I think Konza Martin was really smart to get in there early uh, to make the offer before anybody else did uh, and to to get that commitment I think that that was a, a really smart savvy move
1: and I think you look at kind of how they they ebbed and flowed with events here if you kind of it's where you look back in kind of hindsight and sort of see what happened, you know, and how things unfolded. What in early August or in late July, you know, it seemed like it seemed like Joplin and Bates were sort of drifting into Texas's orbit. And around that time, you know, you start to see Missouri extended an offer to Sean Dura-Gordon on July nine had already extended an offer on July nine to Sean Dura-Gordon. This is around the time Texas was getting ready to offer Joplin, and that was an offer he'd been waiting on. Missouri kind of kept, I think, Hicks and Zach Hicks and Sean Dura-Gordon kind of, you know, in the bullpen a little bit, to to borrow a really poor analogy there. Um, But then you look in early August, and they go out and they offer Miles Kelly and Blake Wesley and James White, you know, kind of in a stretch where... It looks like Bates is sort of flagging Dewar Gordon's coming down to the wire and you know if if there's a pivot in there you know too, around the time Bates is getting ready to kind of announce his decision Caleb Brown also announces that he's getting ready to come out so you know just commit to a school so I, I think you know you're, you'll have to sort of read tea leaves here and sort of infer at times but it seemed like as Bates and and Joplin are are fading, they they were able to kind of pivot, like you said, get, you know, a kid in Caleb Brown that they know, um, you know, who the intangibles are, are, are pretty obvious to them. They have a good feel for that. And, you know, they were able to come in and sort of, I think, lock down Sean Duvergordon. There were early forecasts to him maybe picking Georgia. So if you were able to sway him away from... You know uh, another program and a and a guy and Tom Crean who's shown that he can develop, you know, three star talent into top flight, you know, professional prospects. If you cough, could, OG, and Midley, cough, uh, cough, Dwayne Wade, <laughs> cough, Victor Oladipo. I
0: was just going, you know, right for right, you know, with the the knife to the heart of Mizzou fans with OG,
1: but you know. They get a guy in that, you know, Wing wasn't a pressing, pressing need in this class, but they got a guy who, um, as we have mentioned before, kind of upgrades them physically and in terms of what he can provide them as a skill set. But the big deal to me was that they, they they clamped down Yaya Keda, and I think you and I had said all summer privately to one another, just getting Keda in the boat would, would ease a lot of concerns because you would have filled two spots with two quality prospects. They needed to, to shore up Combo Guard, and they needed to get a, a guy to sort of come in line with Tillman going. And when they locked in Brookshire, they they sort of accomplished one of those goals. But Kata was sitting out there, and to get and to get him aboard fills two absolute needs right now. Now, you could say the Bates thing again stings, but they got two kind of tent poles they needed there. They got, you know, a guy that they... That has some upside and Duaa Gordon, and then they went out and they were really, really on the ball to get Brazil, Brazil, and so I'm, I'm going to stumble over that <laughs> name. I apologize, Everybody Yeah, one? until we
0: until yeah. we get like a uh, a helper from uh, Missouri to tell us how it is actually pronounced.
1: But that's a you know that's a quality pickup there. So they've what they did was I think they. They had found some fast risers at the combo forward spot and hadn't been able to lock one down. Well, they did that with with Trevon. So I sort of look at how they ebbed and flowed over the last kind of month of August and thought they did a really good job. You know, they they acclimated and they. There were some guys they were in on longer. There were some guys who maybe shifted around in the priority and pecking order, but they got there and they got you know five spots filled. And in this sort of climate, that that's a big deal. You know, where. You know, the dead period is again extended until January where you're not going to get guys on campus. And yeah, it's, it's a really, really tough are, recruiting year. And as, as you sort of mentioned before, not being able to scout live and having to really sort of work in an unsettled environment to close up five of six spots before, you know, really around Labor Day, that that's good work. Um, Now
0: they've got to go and develop. Well, well and on top of that, I, I, another thing is that, you know, a year where the in-state recruiting was not as robust as it's been in years past and you consider the fact that uh i mean like brazil him landing um in the the area that he landed this late in the process is a blessing um but you got two in-state kids uh on top of that that were you know in the top 175 range depending on your service um you know, but still being able to recruit somebody like Dura Gordon, I think is huge, uh, because that's a guy who's never been to campus. Yeah, uh, and you, you're getting a really, really good prospect who's never been to campus. Um, it's it's like this is a really, really tough offseason to be recruiting, coming off two pretty tough years in a row, and for uh, for Martin to kind of put together a, a class that I think, I mean, and, and not without some pitfalls. Uh, I, I think. It's not a perfect class. It's not like this outstanding class, but it's a really solid, you know, roster building kind of class. And this is the kind of recruiting wins that he uh, needed. The, so, sorry. No, I no. And, and
1: what I was going to get to was you sort of hit on it earlier. And again, we're not trying to speak ill of Caleb Brown here, but we're just saying, like, if you were to swap Brown for Tamar Bates, this is lock, stock, and barrel probably a top. They're in the top twenty five right now, I imagine they might slip a bit out of that range once some other commits
0: come in. Yeah, they're they're ahead of Kentucky
1: right now. As you said, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna slide back a bit, but <laughs> if they had landed Bates, I think this group could have been one that would have been borderline top twenty five when all things were said and done. They would have had two really great prospects out of position in E. They would have locked in a priority in K yeah yeah and everyone would have felt like oh yeah this was a win so i think really if you're coming down to judging this class you know on the turn of brown debates i get why that's frustrating but i think you also have to like look at the other work they did this year and in this cycle to sort of get back to where they were and especially considering that i think this was a kind of a late breaking year for in-state you know talent i think you know, Kaida didn't move into the top, rivals top 50 until top 150 until probably January or February. He was in a guy that didn't really move onto the radar nationally, or at least in that kind of realm, until midway through the winter. Um, Brookshire has has sort of moved up steadily. He's now a borderline top 150 guy in the two four seven c- composite. It was just a year where outside of you know Jordan Nesbitt or you know, I mean, Muhammad, this was kind of a a late, a late blooming class and, you know, what to see, you know, nothing is assured, but you you look at the three that, you know, players they secured from Missouri and you have to feel good about the returns they got there. So uh, I think it's heartening to see them sort of, I think, recover and at least get the kind of three and four year prospects that, that we think they're going to need to really build the kind of core for Martin to be successful here.
0: Yeah, and, and there's still work to be done. I mean, they still need another ball handler, at least one more ball handler. Um, and I think you and I probably would prefer they bring in a ball handler with some experience. Uh, you know, they they still have some guys on their board who are uncommitted. So it's possible that, you know, maybe they, they are going to stay after Kelly and Wesley. Um, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that they're going to be pursuing those guys with the same level of fervor that, you know, maybe they were with... Uh, like someone like Bates earlier Um, you know but we'll see Uh, I certainly think that I certainly think that there's there's room probably to take one more freshman um, although I would prefer that they just pivot and get some older guys Um, but uh, you know that I've been kind of wanting to pick at this uh, this bone for a bit and you had tweeted out uh what was it over the weekend it was after uh, after kind committed so it might have been like late last week
1: i think it was earlier this week it was on monday when uh brian put that article out or put that analysis piece out
0: so we're gonna put brian snow who is uh i guess is he is he like the lead guy at 247 i think he might be that uh that evan's gone so i people i don't know evan daniels was the lead scout um at two four seven sports, uh, formerly a scout.com. he took a job as like a NBA agent or something. Oh, uh, like he's that.
1: In, he's representing like uh, he's working with CAA to like scout, evaluate, and help with coaching searches, basically.
0: Yeah. So he, he's he's not working for two four seven anymore. He he took a job, kind of moving up the channel, but, um, and so I think Brian Snow is kind of lead guy. Anyway, he wrote an article, uh that felt very throwaway to me. Like it just felt very lazy. Um, And most of my criticisms of Brian Snow in the past have just been that he just kind of comes off as like a dick on Twitter, Um, which, you know, like I've realized I kind of can do the same. So whatever, like I'm not gonna fault somebody for how they come across in the written word. Um, but this is a really lazy article. And so the article is looking at Consul Martin's unique recruiting history. And Consul Martin does have a very unique recruiting history. So I think the, the foundation of what he was you know, going for is probably there. But his conclusions seem just wildly off base. Uh, and mainly it stems from the fact that he seems to come to the conclusion that like that the five-man class that, that Martin landed and currently has... Uh, is the class that he set out this offseason to end up with. And we just spent 23 minutes. Uh, we're 23 minutes in the podcast, so probably uh, 20 of those minutes talking about how that is really not the case. <laughs> and I think you have more of the numbers on it, but like it seems to really ignore the fact that that these are certainly the guys that, that Martin landed, but it's not really the guys that he pursued early on um but the the thing that he did better with this class and he's done in more recent classes is he pivoted better and he landed uh you know class b guys uh with more success than he uh you know i say what you will about somebody like um you know jordan wilmore but you know i'd be surprised if jordan wilmore was the the top post on their board for for 2020 um, you know but here they've got they've got we, we feel as though they've got two of their five were initial targets and they ended up with three other guys who they feel good about so
1: Brian's thesis was that Konzo Martin will offer or will will make the basis of his class high mid you know low mid Low major, low high major guys, basically guys on that line between mid major plus and high major. So guys that could go start a really, really good like Missouri Valley program or a really, really good A10 program or move into, you know, a high major program. If you look at Missouri's offers though for the 2021 cycle, they put out 32 offers. Around 20 of them were to guys who were in the top 150 of Mr. Snow's recruiting service. So... <laughs> he could look all this up. Um, the first... If you look at Missouri offered, I think, throughout 15 offers going into last fall, so between May of 2018 and October 2019, throughout 15 offers, 11 of them were the top 150 kids. Like, Missouri and... You know, we saw this last year. They The first guys they really brought on campus were from Michigan, Pierre Brooks, Jaden Akins. Um, later on, you know, they started in the fall to bring in some 2021s in, you know, obviously in Tamar Bates. And there's some other guys that, that, that made it down. Bryce Hopkins was the guy who made it down at some point as well. So Missouri's initial targets were mostly top 100 guys. And they probably try some guys out of Michigan. Missouri's first in state offer was probably I'm looking at it right now. Was probably to DeMar Bates, yeah. Was and Bates is from Kansas, so Missouri Yeah, so he's technically yeah, not technically not safe. Not safe.
0: Sorry, <laughs> I just I assume Casey Metro area there. So yeah, no, it's fair. It's it's, it's like you know, people as, when you consider. So I'll a, say their first, their first, or Mizzou football landing like an East St. Louis, you know, player like that's kind of in state. It's not really their regional. Days. Their
1: first regional offer they extended was to Tamar Bates, and that was in October of 2019. Until then, they had not even been anywhere close to the region at all. Most of the guys they threw out like their first seven offers were to top 80 prospects then they offered Caleb Brown then they offered three more top 80 prospects offered Caleb Washington borderline top 150 kid then two more top 20 prospects so to act as if Missouri was targeting you know these kind of prospects in the jump is not accurate now the one thing I would say is they got into this spring and you know they targeted David Joplin, they targeted James Graham. um, And those are two fast risers that, you know, saw that have now moved into the top 60 in some rankings. So I think what Missouri did was they saw that they didn't have kind of long-term traction with any of their major targets out of Michigan. Bates moved into the priority order. They were recruiting Brookshire. and He moved up the board as well. They locked Brookshire in really quickly and, April and May. And then they kind of played everything else out and they tried to keep Bates in play and tried to get Yeda and Kate on board. One of those worked out, the other one didn't. And then I think, like we said, in the last two months, six weeks to a month, they kind of closed everything else down. Like they'd been recruiting Dewey Gordon for a while. That started back in May, but they didn't offer him until July. So I think to Brian's point, it was like Missouri did a good job of identifying guys who fit their culture, who fit what they wanted, and in a tough environment, locking them down. But I don't think at all they started out with the goal. There's just no evidence in terms of what their offers were and in terms of the raw timeline that these guys were considered to be the foundational cornerstones of this class. And I think what happens is Conzo Martin has built his rosters though on guys that sort of are solid three-star prospects so how he got there in the i think broadly speaking he's right that sometimes he'll take guys that are more developmental prospects more long-term prospects but that doesn't mean this cycle it was the focus so i, I think there's a key distinction that had to be made
0: yeah and like that's the kind of thing like where he started out was seemingly correct but it just seems seemed really disingenuous that he it, it's seemed to make the focus of this recruiting class as to where it ended and not actually just going and logging into his own site and looking at who Mizzou offered and uh and who they try to get in with early uh and it just didn't work out and like that's most of recruiting um you know especially when you're uh a middle of the pack or, or low middle of the pack SEC team um, you know like you're gonna go out there and you're gonna offer a whole lot of people and sometimes you're able to kind of hang in there and sometimes you're not like you can go just look at Ole Miss's offer list and you can look at um, I don't know like Vanderbilt and uh, Mississippi state and a- anybody else who's sort of had a hard time getting into the top half of the conference over the last five or six years. Um and you'll look at their offer list and it's there's going to be a lot of guys that Missouri and and these other programs offered and like the whole thing and like this is kind of we, we talked to, on a previous podcast kind of about making the graphic and, and how none of that really matters because all it means is that you stuck around probably too long Um you know but you don't fault Martin uh, for for going after someone like Jade Akins, um, where you you fault him is for staying in too long. And that um, didn't happen, right? And it, it it has happened. Now I understand like why you stay in with somebody like Caleb Love,
1: or to, or tomorrow, uh, or why but, you stay, but in. The, like for regional guys, if you if you say yeah, you're gonna re-
0: you got guys in your region, you're gonna fight for and but but somebody from michigan or somebody from ohio or like even like hunter salas like i don't i don't know how long they were in the in the picture with with hunter salas they offered him very early but they pulled the plug when it became apparent that they weren't they weren't going to land him you know and it maybe that happened when salas went from like a top 40 prospect to a top 15 prospect they're like well let's get out of here um You know, because then you're fighting other kind of regional schools uh, and hoping that one of the blue bloods doesn't hop into basically fighting all the blue bloods, and it's just like uh, you're you're not going to win that battle unless that's a regional kid, and then you have a chance. So,
1: and we've talked about this before. I think the question that Martin is still confronting is, can he win a battle for you know? guys that i that i would say are like one stand they're just outside a standard deviation for him so martin's like median recruit like the the average martin recruit like if you look at prep recruiting from his time at tennessee up until now it's about up to now 40 guys their mean recruiting grade in the composite is 90.3 or number 199 like that And the median's around 200. Basically, Sean Dura-Gordon is... Well, and Yaya Keita and Anton Brookshire are, like, right around the average prospect that Martin has landed in his career. So guys between 115 and 200 in, in the composite. You know, and, and sometimes there have been guys that have panned out. You know, you look at the list. Josh Richardson, who's in the NBA, was number 246. He's also landed in another NBA wing in Jalen Brown, who's number four. Michael Porter, number two. So the real question for Martin, though, is can he get inside the top 50? Like, Can he land you know, guys like we've talked about, like EJ Liddell, Caleb Love, um, a Courtney Ramey? That's sort of the next step for him. But there are challenges sort of in place there with kind of the program that missouri is right now we won't get into them here but that are sort of larger than the
0: coach that's in in
1: the in the <laughs> seat right now
0: you're you're working on a uh a, a robust uh, collection of data that might surprise some people so I
1: think. what i will say is martin's career recruiting is in line with what missouri's what missouri's expectations should be given What it spends on basketball. Martin's not recruiting any worse or any better than what Missouri invests in its program. Now, the hope is that Martin would get here, find another gear, and do kind of what Brad Underwood's done at Illinois, which is, you know, find a way to land that next tier up prospect. It hasn't happened yet. And so I think, but it doesn't mean that they're not targeting them. Back to circle back to Brian's point. Like just because Martin's recruiting has landed in that position doesn't mean that he's not, you know, trying to <laughs> ardently land game changing guys. He's not looking around and you know saying uh, I don't want to recruit top fifty players to top one hundred players. That's not the case. I think how Martin recruits and his style of recruiting doesn't always translate with every kid, and we've talked about that before. And so, you know, it, what it comes down to is if they can't get traction, can they still find talent that is going to be invested in what they want to do? And this class, I think, is a testament to that potentially working in their favor, to them maybe getting the, getting the mix right.
0: Yeah. I mean, you look at uh, the 2022 class, and they've already got offers out to Aiden Shaw and Terrace Reed, who are both top 100 regional prospects and um you know i think shaw has potential to um yeah to land really high up if he keeps improving the way he kind of has over the last uh you know six or eight months you know and Terrace reed just every time you watch him on on video just stands out as you know being a guy who's going to be really good uh in college they've they've offered Um, 14
1: guys in 2022 11 are in the top 150 two four sevens composite so clearly just targeting middle mid-major and borderline (laughs) players Uh, if you look at the players they've contacted like just spoken with at least during the june period there are some more unranked and three-star guys but yeah the first you know 10 to 15 guys they've offered have been top 150 kids and you know Two of those are, are, are regional guys in Aiden in Aiden Shaw and Terrace Reed, who are I think like gonna probably wind up inside the top fifty if they continue on their current trajectory. So they they're targeting really really talented players. The question is, can you know can they lock some of those guys down and have them be the kind of the centerpieces that slide into this kind of really diverse core? I think they're trying to put together.
0: Yeah um yeah so we're we're both really happy to kind of wrap up the recruiting stuff with um with the class i think that uh there's a lot of reason to be excited about the guys that are on uh are going to be on the roster and um yeah so i think when you look at the you know, what sort of lies ahead for them in the spring, um, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, some, they, they really need uh, an impact score, um, you know, but I feel a lot better about the foundation of the roster uh, right now than I, I did, you know, six months ago. Um, so we do know that the dead period has been extended until uh, at least until 2021. Um, we also know that the NCAA has okayed a, what was it, November 21st? November
1: November 25 is when.
0: 25th. Uh, Good, gives me four extra days to write previews.
1: Preseason tip will likely land on October 14. That's six weeks out. Uh, regular season tip's off. November 25 is the D1 Council that sort of has signed off on this. Um, the max number of games teams can play this year will be 27 that includes exempt events so if you are in like the Maui Invitational you can play 27 games if you are not in an exempt event uh, Matt Norlander wrote it's 24 or 25 you know that seems like you need to pin that down but basically shave three games off which is what you would play in an exempt event Um, and speaking of exempt events John Rothstein reported earlier in the week that the Myrtle Beach uh, Invitational, which Missouri is a member of that field, is potentially going to try and relocate with seven other events to try and get put into a log jam at uh, the worldwide uh, sports uh, kind of facility down in Orlando. <laughs> so, That's wild. So how that gets scheduled, I have no idea. That's going to be its own fun kind of bubble down there. Potentially, but big takeaway here is that if the SEC plays a full eighteen-game slate, Missouri is probably looking at a non-conference schedule of six to nine games, um, starting on November twenty-five. If you, which would make sense, the because we'll have to see what this calendar looks like. But the SEC regular season or SEC portion of the slate usually tips off the second week of January, so they would have about five to six weeks to get in six to nine games you also have to consider the workaround for finals weekend there so uh, it'll be interesting to see how missouri uh blocks that out and who they keep on the books and who they dump uh and well
0: it's really interesting when you think about like a non-conference season and we i think like you looked at you know Kansas and Illinois being on the uh, on the schedule that's a really really exciting um, non-conference schedule to have you know these these two you know border rivals and getting Kansas back is obviously like you know really good for the rivalry and um but they were going to play that in the sprint center and i mean they still can we'll just play it in it the just sprint might center
1: be a little bit quieter
0: right you know it's just like like part of the the excitement for those games is when you play them on a neutral court is uh a neutral court that's so close to both fan bases is you get a packed building that's 50 50 split it's like that's why bragging rights is always so fun uh you know with with some more recent years maybe <laughs> uh not included in that but um you know but history has always kind of suggested that you know it's, it's going to fill up uh, the building in st louis and I don't even remember what they're calling it. Is it the Enterprise Center these days? What are they calling it? Um, Yeah.
1: The I, I'm more fascinated by what are they going to do? Do they want to keep the Myrtle Beach exempt event on the schedule? Like, do you want to, is that a game you want to travel out of state for? Because if you drop that and you were just keep these games that we know that they were trying to schedule, with Wichita State, Utah, Kansas, Illinois, Liberty, and Bradley—that's six right there. Like, maybe one falls off. Maybe Utah decides it doesn't want to do the travel to Columbia in this sort of climate. Whatever, you can replace them with a regional buy game. Um, but Wichita, Missouri State—that—that that is all. That—that would be my for That would be my, first, would be my <laughs> alternate suggestion. But um but yeah
0: play the game play it or shit put call, Sloan Sloan Sloan. Schedule. I call don't care.
1: Or, or missouri state just swap them in it you know play it at chaffetz play it at enterprise rebuild you know this the old sports arena i don't know just
0: <laughs> play it in west pine <laughs> yes
1: play it was Pine. <laughs> <laughs> play it in Brewer Field House. I don't know, just like wherever you want to go. You go. But do you keep? How do they? Who do they keep on that schedule in five to six? If they only do five to six games, because you got to play a minimum of thirteen per the NCAA to the season, and you can only play as many as twenty seven. To me, like this is just getting the right amount of sample size so you can seed a field of sixty four. Um. So, but, you know, what's the right balance between a competitive schedule and, you know, safety with travel and, you know, who's, you know, now that calendars have been thrown into upheaval, who's available? Do you just bank on having Wichita State, Kansas, and Illinois and then just swap in three bye games and just say, look, we played three NCAA caliber teams and we played three bye games just cause that's what we would have done anyway. And then we go into sec play. Like, do you just do it that way and keep it pretty stripped down? You know, don't really travel regionally. Maybe your longest road trip is to Wichita to play at Wichita state. Is that what you do? I don't know, but it'll be interesting how they structure the non con schedule, uh, to try and fit with the sec slate and sort of maximize, you know, their, their tournament resume, uh, in obviously imperfect conditions.
0: Well, so it is like mid-September and so we've got basically two months. And so probably like another, um, like another month at least of like talking about basketball theoretically. Um, before we can start, kind of actually getting into more previewing, um, this has been a really long off season, and I've been stuck at home for most of it.
1: The look—we've <laughs> already started breaking down the SEC teams.
0: We've, uh... Uh, yeah. So I'm—I've been—I'm a little behind on my my previews because the uh, who knows when you're going to need them. N- Right, like I didn't I didn't really want to like dive in because I, I really kind of hit full gear once we get the schedule and, you know, we haven't gotten a schedule. So it's like, until you get the schedule, it's really difficult to, to kind of run through uh, and, and start to figure out where you're going to place teams. Because, um, you know, like we've talked about before, we really like to look at, because the schedule is unbalanced, it's easy to kind of look at who's on the roster and be like, hey, they look like a fourth place team. But if you play like the other, you know, five teams uh that are all top if you play them each home and home you're probably going to lose more games than you should and maybe that team who looks like an eighth place team uh is playing the bottom five teams and so you know they're going to end up uh you know probably winning 11 or 12 games just because their schedule isn't as good but the but the only thing Um, you can take
1: to the bank is when you have is when you have your three set opponents so like the only thing you can really do in terms of projecting Missouri is to ask how they look against old miss arkansas and texas a&m like that's because you know you're, they're going to play six yeah. games against those teams like so you can kind of look at what a third of the schedule looks like and get a sense for okay our
0: and honestly like like <laughs> those are all teams i look at in a very similar place as yeah Missouri is as, as like everyone's could be could be pretty good. Got a lot of flaws. Not really sure. They're all so stacked between gonna, seven and eleven. In the- they're all going to split. <laughs> like yeah, they're they're all going to split games against each other, uh, and and nullify like any. It's not like you know you're going to this season like Kentucky with obviously the most talented roster, and just basically hoping that you know, uh, maybe you're you you don't have to play road games against like you know the four of the other top five teams or you could be like arkansas who Um, a month
1: ago was feeling pretty great and then the last second you know exit of isaiah joe and we were talking about that last night like arkansas with one dude that roster with one guy going looks radically different like the entire like i think isaiah joe was like the guy who gave that roster coherence. You could plug him in and say, "Okay, he will play wing." You're probably going to put like Desi a combo guard. Okay, are they going to and we kind of know what they're what they might do with, you know, Moody. So, oh, are they going to play Moody and Joe together and then have a point guard? Regardless, like we kind of have an idea what they might do in the backcourt. And the front court will probably have Justin Smith because he's a grad transfer and you went and got him. So, and now that rotation just looks wildly different and that's with one guy gone and before and that's without even seeing the rest of the schedule so um until we get that in play like we've had the stats i've had the stats done for a couple of months and just been waiting on you know matchups and how the schedule's going to break for teams and we don't have that yet so
0: yeah, I've, I've been making more of an effort in the last like couple of weeks to kind of go through and get my my like spreadsheets ready so I can kind of get that stuff inserted into the post and have it all kind of ready. Cuz that's like the thing for me is like when I go through and I see who's gone, who's coming back and then I actually look at at the depth chart. To me like that's the real key as when you it, it's all well and good to be like, "Oh, look, like they had a good recruiting class." Uh, and I think Arkansas is a really good example of this. Um, Like Arkansas is one of those teams that that when you just look at it in the abstract, like Arkansas looks like a team that could be pretty good. But when you look at their depth chart and you actually start to place guys, you're like, I don't know that I like this all that much. I actually like Auburn a lot better. Uh, And Auburn doesn't have anywhere near as like the ceiling of talent as Arkansas. uh, But they've got a really, really good point guard who's coming in as a freshman and they've just got like a truckload of these dudes on the wing, uh, who are who you know are just going to be as fearless as anybody else in the Auburn roster, um, you know. And then he went out and he's he's got like some solid interior guys, like he got uh, like what JT Thor and um, and uh, what what's the guy that they had last year didn't play a whole lot, but was nice. Is it Babatunde uh, Akambola, Yeah. Uh, another guy who I think like can can kind of step in and help. They just I,
1: have they have like four or five guys between like ninety and one hundred and fifty who didn't have to play a lot because there were veterans on the roster last year and he kept the bench relatively modest. But those guys were they weren't. I think I wrote earlier in the spring that they were kind of a black box in the sense that like they were recruited well, but there just wasn't enough sample size of possessions to really say anything definitive about. What they might be and there were very few hints to go on but you know bruce has found guys that fit his system he's got a culture built around that and he you know his system is based on having a point guard that can absolutely dictate pace and sharif cooper can do that he's you know had these kind of long hybrid three four guys that can just wreak havoc and in, in transitioning on straight line drives and JT Thorken, will do that. So they've got guys who, like, at the two critical positions, he's got dudes, and then he's got a bunch of other options around that. And even if he doesn't have a core seven, there's enough pieces he could go platoon.
0: Yeah, they're they they're gonna play like yeah, so guys. And, to your point, and you 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 know, going like to Auburn is gonna be they hellish. hit threes. Uh,
1: the place gets jacked up. The tempo gets fast, and suddenly you're. Just holding on. it. So, uh, back to your original point here. We are waiting to see the schedule because it's going to, you know, once you look at the guys on paper, it's like, okay, maybe these pieces at Arkansas don't quite fit in the way that is as logical as if they had Isaiah Joe there. Okay, but the schedule helps them. They got a break on the schedule. That's going to – or, oh, God, yeah. they they – have to go to Florida. They got to go to Kentucky. They got to go to LSU, and they have a home and home with Bama. Mike, yeah, they, that's a tough draw. So it it just gets yeah. tough right now, and I think it's you know, Blue Ribbon's going to put out its top 25 tomorrow, which still seems weird to me that like we haven't had a practice yet. And we're doing preseason top 25s, and we don't even know the schedule. Yeah like normally I wouldn't mind preseason top 25s because at least we have the schedule to go on, but we don't even have schedules yet. So it's right. a lot of forecasting without knowing kind of what the conditions on the ground are going to look like.
0: Exactly. So, um, so we're probably going to have a, at least one or two more podcasts before we uh, do anything that is um, season preview. Uh, we'll, we'll probably go out and get like, you know, Corey keys and, and blake level to come on and, and talk scc hoops so we'll have plenty of time to do like preview stuff there um but we're going to take a couple weeks off in the meantime matt anything you want to get off your chest before we get out of here
1: no uh, i'm good i feel like we uh we were we were firm but respectful in our uh, disagreement with brian Stone, so i thought we handled that well <laughs>
0: No, no ill will uh, meant towards Brian. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. Uh, he is a Reds fan, so he has that going against him. I, you have to feel uh, sorry for him in that respect. Uh, also, a Bengals <laughs>
1: fan. So,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, double nut punch on that one. So, um, Cincinnati sports not where it's at. Um, so we will uh, see you in two weeks. Uh, Make sure you're listening to uh, BK and, and Nate. They're doing a good job over there. Uh, and until next time, take